Well, hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Godcast. I'm delighted to say that joining me today is Grace Blakely. Now, Grace is uh, an English economics and political commentator and columnist. She's a journalist and an author. She is staff writer for uh, Tribune magazine and was previously the economics commentator at the New Statesman. Grace has appeared on many programmes such as uh, Question Time, uh, Good Morning Britain, uh, Politics Live and The Andrew Marr Show. So I'm delighted to welcome Grace who's uh, uh, released a book just at the end of last year called How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism, The Corona Crash. Grace, it's lovely to welcome you to the Godcast. How are you today? Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here and I am well, thank you. Now, you did let me into a secret a moment ago. I asked you where you were. Tell everybody where we're hooking up from today. I'm in Burnley. You are in... I'm coming to you live from uh, from Streatham in South London. Uh, the weather is pretty appalling, but I'm safely ensconced in my flat. Right. Have you lived down there a while in Streatham, Grace? Um, we actually just moved here. Um, so at the beginning of the pandemic, my partner and I moved in with my parents for a bit, which is uh, down in Basingstoke. Um, and we moved back up to London, um, I think October last year. So we've not been here long, but um, I've always lived around kind of South London uh, before as well. So uh, yeah, quite comfortable. <laughs> and how's the lockdown going? Is it is it bearable for you? I mean, I have absolutely no reason to complain because everything, you know, it hasn't changed my life dramatically in the sense that I never went to an office. I always worked from home. I was writing from home. I was planning on doing this book and that's what I'm doing at the moment. I've got a new book. I'm working on um, I'm not kind of in a in a job where I have to be on zoom calls all day so I can't complain on that front but um it certainly is somewhat compromising the creative process of uh, of trying to write a book it's um not massively easy being um being creative when you're stuck in you know four walls 24 hours a day yeah. but um just about managing I think like everyone yeah Lovely. Okay, Grace. Let's go back. Let's go back a few years, if we can. You um, you were privately educated, I noticed. Just just tell us about those school days. Were they very formative for you? What's your reflections on on being in a private school? Yeah. Well, I was um, I was I didn't get on brilliantly at school. I was um, not particularly well behaved throughout the the whole of my childhood. Um, so I ended up going to quite a lot of different secondary schools. I was at um, an all girls school for two years uh, in years seven and eight. And then I was politely asked to leave. Um, and then I was a, a, a boarding school, basically. Um, I didn't board, but, you know, I did every now and again um, for another three years. And at the end of that, I was actually told to leave. Um, and then I ended up going to a state sixth form college, um, which was actually really, really great. And I managed to not get expelled from that. I was only suspended once. Um, so there you have it. But no, I always had quite a lot of, um, I've said this before, but I always had kind of some difficulties with authority, um, really, you know, from when I was very, very young. And it's actually something I think that runs in my family because my mother's exactly the same. And so was my, my grandfather. Um, so yeah, I was kind of, uh, you know, not particularly well suited to, a, especially a boarding school environment where it is quite, um, you know, there's lots of, of rules and, you know, uh, hierarchies and timetables and things. Um, 
So I, yeah, ended up getting in, in, in some trouble, but it was never because of, you know, not concentrating in lessons or any of that type of stuff. If anything, yeah. you know, very. Uh, <clears throat> that's yeah. quite interesting because, uh, you know, I wasn't the best behaved at school and, uh, I really and I didn't take an academic journey till later in life, but quite often if you're naughty or you're misbehaving, it doesn't always follow, or doesn't usually follow perhaps that you're academic, but you did go on to, to Cambridge, didn't you, to study? So how did you, where did you find that kind of, that kind of balance between kind of being naughty and actually thinking, well, actually I've got, I've got half a decent brain here. I need to be educated. Yeah, it, yeah, it was Oxford um, actually. That I Oxford, sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine really doesn't make that much of a difference but um you know people are very <laughs> precious about these things um yeah so I I don't know I guess I always kind of knew that I wanted to I mean I always had some interest in politics I always knew that I wanted to do something in that vein um and I think I set on I set on the idea of going to Oxford very early on actually it was um my both my parents went to Cambridge so that's where they met and I think I kind of ex was expressing an interest in politics very young. Funnily enough, I actually had um, a letter published in the New Statesman when I was 14, which is quite funny that I ended up working there when I was, uh, when I was older. Um, and I think it was my dad that said, oh, you know, if you like politics so much, you should do PPA at Oxford. That's what all the politicians do. So I had it set in my mind from quite a young age that that was what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, what was funny was that my friends always used to kind of take the mickey out of me because I would get sent out of my lessons, um, often because I was bored, but I would sit outside reading these huge books on, you know, various different aspects of politics and history and all these different sorts of things. So I, you know, spent a lot of my time reading, um, especially when I'd managed to get myself in trouble and get myself grounded. I would just spend all the, all the time reading. Um, and I think that was kind of, yeah, what got me through school, really. I always found refuge I suppose from everything that was kind of that I thought was wrong with the world in in books and ideas and, and mm. ways of making it different um and yeah I think that was really how I how I got into Oxford it wasn't anything to do with you know massive extracurricular activities or having shown loads of initiative to go and do loads of different things I was just really liked ideas and I think yeah. that came in my in my interviews my personal statement was the was the family quite political did you sit around the meal tables talking politics is that did that kind of arouse your interest in, in politics? Yeah, so my family um, uh, is, is very political and we did talk a lot about those sorts of things. Um, I think I get a lot of it from my granddad, actually, who I was quite close to um, when he was alive. He died when I was 14, um, but he was a very political, um, political guy. He had basically, again, this is why I, my mum always says we have this kind of naughty gene. He was, again, you know, had troubles with authority. Um, ran away from home when he was 14 and signed up to join the Merchant Navy and just travelled around the world for, for quite some time. And it was when he was away that he read the Communist Manifesto and he then came back and decided, oh, I'm interested in this, this kind of socialism thing. Um, and he ended up working at Sainsbury's all his life, basically. Um, and he was a shop steward in the TGWU um and uh you know just ended up reading he was basically kind of self-taught he ended up reading a lot about kind of socialism and, and 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 that sort of stuff ended up doing an open university degree when he was um much older uh but yeah I mean if most of his life he was basically self-taught and was very interested in politics and he passed that on to my mum who um you know went to a pretty terrible comprehensive school but ended up getting into Cambridge I think largely because of 
the kind of education that she'd had from my my granddad and it was a very kind of political education at that as well and yeah he was always a big presence in um in my life when I was growing up and we would have all sorts of conversations about you know socialism and the world and you know how mm. to how to make things uh, marginally better um so yeah I think it was it had a lot to do with my my upbringing do you, do you think it follows that um we're products of what our parents and grandparents are I, I was um well my mum wasn't very political isn't very political really but my dad was a big Thatcherite I mean I, I, was, I was an atheist right. and um I think my brother's gone on to follow that pathway is where I don't know if it's my job or just the way I, I maybe look at life but I, I, um, I was intrigued by um, a theologian called Giles Fraser who I'm sure you'll, you'll be aware of who describes himself as a right-wing socialist and I was, yeah. quite, um, I was quite impressed by that because I thought yeah that, that I can fit in that box do you think that's it's possible to be a right-wing socialist? I mean it certainly is just look at the Labour Party. <laughs> Um, yeah I mean I think I think it really it, it really depends so you know a lot of people have quite a kind of rigorous interpretation of what it means to be a socialist which is based on basically Marxist theory um and I would kind of put myself in that category in the sense that you know my view of the world is very much based on on Marx and Marxist thought um and I think you know obviously I don't have a background in a kind of culture that would lead me automatically to socialism other than kind of what was passed on to me by my parents. I kind of very much came to it from an intellectual perspective. Um, so, you know, thinking about the inherent like contradictions and problems generated by capitalism as a system of political economy and like looking at the, uh, the kind of um, the ways in which that system generates uh, its own you know kind of the foundations of its own collapse really and that's kind of why I um that's where my kind of anti-capitalism comes from but I know you know a lot of other people see socialism differently so you know I was um chatting the other day about uh on, on Owen Jones's show about Keir Starmer referring to himself as an ethical socialist um and you know I see that as a very long tradition in the Labour Party that's basically kind of socialism without class struggle so it's a more kind of liberal approach to socialism it's you know the idea that everyone should basically have the things that they need to survive that we can't let markets run away with themselves and become kind of disembedded from society um so i think that's a, a kind of current in there as well and certainly i think you know if you combine that with fairly kind of you know culturally conservative uh, uh, perspectives on uh, on the kind of um on the the cultural rather than the economic side of things you could definitely describe yourself as a as a right-wing socialist and to be honest I think that is basically the position of, of most MPs in the Labour Party we don't really have that kind of real um staunch class struggle socialism that we once had in this country that I think is more characteristic of, uh, of the left yeah we'll, we'll come on to that in a moment can you can you remember um when you first kind of um put your flagpost to the Labour Party who was who was leading the way who was inspiring you then well, it was really, I mean, I was not a kind of avid Labourite for most of my time growing up because I really just associated it. I mean, I remember my mum was on the anti-Iraq war marches and, you know, she was very kind of critical of, of Blair. Um, so I was never really like deeply attached to the Labour Party and no one in my family really was either. And when I went to university, you know, I was learning a lot about 
austerity and the problems that it caused. And I remember at the time, the Labour Party wasn't really speaking out about it. So in the 2015 election, for example, I was campaigning for the Greens, basically because they were the only ones who were opposing austerity. Um, it was only really after that, actually before Corbyn, um, the Corbyn kind of movement began, or I even really knew who he was. Uh, it was after that election that I started to get curious about the Labour Party and I joined basically the day after that election. Um, so I could have a kind of say as to who would be leading it and maybe kind of, um, you know, influence that decision. And then obviously the Corbyn moment came about and it became much more than just, um, you know, a, uh, a movement to elect the leader of the Labour Party. It became, it kind of coalesced all this discontent was simmering under the surface of British society all to do with, you know, the cuts, the, um, you know, all those things I was mentioning about uh, the Labour Party's foreign policy, about what happened to it in the years that it was in power. Um, and indeed a kind of vision for transforming society as a whole. And that was really when I started to get excited about the Labour Party. And it was only after that point that I really started to learn the history of Labour as a, as a movement and its roots in that, um, you know, the, the Labour movement and the trade union movements uh, aiming basically to kind of provide parliamentary representation for the working classes in, uh, in, in the UK. Um, and, you know, the the idea that it could resume that role rather than simply kind of saying you know everyone to the left is everyone to the left of us is safe let's try and represent this kind of the, the median voter by focusing on the middle classes as it had done under new labor um i was you know quite excited about that again based on this interpretation i have of what it means to be a socialist which is all to do with marxism and the kind of inherent necessity of, of the struggle between all these different classes that exists under capitalism and how that is what kind of ends up paving the way for potentially a new way of organizing the world. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I didn't have a kind of umbilical relationship with the Labour Party. It was very much a kind of constructed one. But now I feel, you know, in some ways connected to it, to it as an institution, even though for most of its history, it's probably had leaders who haven't really represented my views of the world. I feel like it has, you know, it does have, it's the only organisation that really has the potential to be that vehicle for representing the interests of the majority of people. Yeah, you, you said uh, a few moments ago that you were excited, but, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn kind of started this almost new movement, as it were, or a renewal of a movement. And, and, I, and I suppose when, um, as an observer looking in on politics, he, when Corbyn pushed Theresa May as closely as he did, I thought that was the beginning of something big for him. Mm. And that never materialised. I was just wondering why you thought that never kind of went to the next level, whether whether he was a master of his own downfall or, or whether there was uh, other influences behind that. So I think there are a lot of, of explanations for this. It's kind of over-determined. Um, and some of them relate to failures of Corbyn himself and of the, the wider project. And some of them just relate to the external context. So I think, you know, the big thing in 2017, obviously Theresa May was, was very, very weak and ran a, a particularly poor campaign, but it was also the fact that no one really took Corbyn seriously. So there wasn't this kind of huge uh, media uh, project aimed at kind of, you know, really tearing him apart. It was very much, oh, you know, we're not taking this guy seriously. He's gonna lose really badly. We're just kind of gonna take the mickey out of him. Um, so it went from him kind of being a joke to then in 2017 him being a serious threat. 
And I think he was a threat to a lot of, and the movement as a whole was a threat to a lot of different people. So people within the Labour Party, the right of the Labour Party that saw that if there was going to be this shift to the left, they, that, you know, they would be effectively kind of out of the picture. Uh, to a lot of people in the media, Corbyn obviously like raised a lot of, you know, what I consider to be quite legitimate criticisms of the way that the media works in this country. So they had a vested interest in bringing him down. Um, you know, obviously the, the very wealthy, um, big businesses, lots of people in the city of London, all, there were lots of very powerful groups, I think, that realised after 2017, we need to get more serious about taking this guy down. And, you know, ultimately that is what happened. There was a relentless media campaign over the coming years that sure, most socialists leading the Labour Party could expect to receive that kind of treatment, but it was, you know, astronomically more intense for Corbyn. Um, and there's lots of research, uh, you know, proving this saying, you know, that the way that Corbyn was represented in the media was, was uh, more negative than, than many other leaders have been in the past. So there was that. Um, there was also Brexit, which was another kind of external uh, external issue. Now, I think a lot of us from the very beginning saw that Brexit had the potential to be the, the undoing of the whole project. Um, and there was this debate between those who said, well, we need to move, be more pro-Remain because that's what our core base is. And those of us like me who are saying, well, actually, if we go too far towards that, we are going to lose lots of voters in these key seats. And the most important thing there wasn't thinking about, you know, the average Brexit voter. It was thinking about what happened at the margin. Um, so there's a lot of stuff saying, oh, yeah, well, the average Brexit voter was very wealthy. Well, of course. But the reason it won wasn't because of the average voter being very wealthy. It was because it managed to attract these voters at the margins um, who were former Labour voters who were often quite working class. Um, and the threat of losing those was, um, you know, was the real thing that we, sh we should have been facing up to because of the geographical distribution of Labour support. It would have hurt Labour less to lose, um, you know, younger people in the cities than it did to lose so many people um, in the region. So that was always the kind of um, the tactical consideration when thinking about Brexit. And unfortunately, there was too much pressure, basically, from various different um, corners for, uh, for the kind of, you know, let it be Brexit position that was uh, put forward in 2017 to continue. So there was Brexit. There was also, I think, just, and I, 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 would, I would actually put the decisions on Brexit into this category of kind of strategic errors that was made by the leadership. Um, but there were quite a few strategic errors. I mean, obviously there was the, the massive issue around anti-Semitism, which wasn't dealt with properly, despite there being, you know, lots of people I know within um, the within and around the leadership who were really pushing for more action to be taken on that. That wasn't dealt with uh, quickly enough. Um, it wasn't really still hasn't been dealt with uh, sufficiently. Um, you know, Brexit issue as well. And I think just, there was just a lack of, of direction by 2019. I think so many people within the party and within the project have been shocked by what happened in 2017. And they didn't really, realize that they'd have to innovate and they'd have to adapt to deliver something bigger the next time around um so you know there were loads and loads of different yeah. issues there um I just, felt, I just felt that i just felt corbyn was a weak leader and i wonder what you think whether under a different leadership with the same policies mm. would have been a different outcome I kind of I kind of get what you mean there. I don't think Corbyn is a kind of person who is, you know, a born leader. He doesn't ooze charisma, does he? Um, and he's certainly, you know, not the most polished media personality. In many ways, that was kind of what attracted a lot of people to him at the beginning. Uh, you know, the idea was that this was someone who was going to 
um, not kind of fall foul of the, the kind of hubris that often ends up taking hold of political leaders um, and the, who would actually not be the most competent leader himself, but who would be a stand-in for this wider movement. And this whole idea of, of distributed and decentralized leadership is really something that is quite big on the left. Uh, it's, it's, you know, less about individuals than it is about, you know, movements. Um, the challenge is, of course, is that you do need to, if you're running for office, you need to have some of those characteristics and capabilities that, uh, um, that are usually associated with, with strong and, and effective leadership. And I do think that, uh, that Corbyn was lacking in, in some of those areas um, and that maybe efforts weren't made to push him towards those, uh, those qualities because there was this idea that actually we don't need a strong leader, we've got this movement and we can just get people out on the doorsteps and that will make up for it. I actually don't think that's right. You know, you do need to have someone who has these, these abilities when you're fighting an election. I, I, ne I never thought I would see the day that Burnley would have a Conservative Member of Parliament. There was, a, yeah. I think, as a kid, I think the majority was 27, 28,000, absolutely Labour heartland. And, and I wonder what you feel, Grace, about the movement now, whether, whether it's, it's, it's dead in the water or whether it can be rebirthed differently under, under a new, um, new opposition to Keir Starmer. I mean, a lot of people have uh, I've read articles recently about suggesting that John McDonald might come back to the forefront of politics and put his name forward. You know, whether there's uh, people even like yourself, you know, a younger kind of um, movement willing to take this forward or um, do people like you um, antagonise and irritate Keir Starmer to, to come to your way of thinking or, or find a more uh, um, ground that you can work together as an opposition to the Conservative? Because if you can't, I can't see... I can't see the Labour Party winning, you know, in the next five, ten years. And um, and when yeah. I see a Conservative MP representing Burnley, and I and I live and work within areas of deprivation and poverty, it leaves me at a loss really towards politicians per se about actually what we can do. What what are the politicians going to do to save these people in these situations? So I think there's a lot, lot to unpack there. I think firstly, that question as to how Burnley ended up with a, with a Conservative MP, it is a longer story. Um, uh, it's not just the case of this being one election. It's working class voters have basically been drifting away from the Labour Party for decades now. Um, and there's a, there's a good book actually that looks into this pattern um, called uh, the, the New Politics of Class. Um, and it basically looks at how, since 1997 actually, um, turnout has been falling in successive elections and it's largely been driven by working class voters leaving the electorate and that's happened basically every election um, other than actually 2017 which is when people did actually re-enter and, and, and started to vote again so Labour has this really deep-rooted problem which is a problem that lots of social democratic parties all over the rich world have at the moment you can see it with the democrats in the US as well which is that after many many years of targeting the middle classes the working classes have left um, and they've often started voting for very right wing parties, um, uh, you know, often on kind of quite reactionary cultural bases. Um, and, you know, you can see that all over the world. You see it in, in the US and the UK, across much of Europe. And it's not, I think, an answer, a, a question that any social democratic party has developed an answer to yet. You saw one version of this in the, in the UK with Corbynism 
um, in you know parts of Europe where left-wing movements emerged and tried to kind of recapture uh, people's attention and build this coalition between traditional working class voters and younger people who were basically being screwed over by, uh, by the economic system. That hasn't really worked anywhere. But equally, the other option, which you kind of saw, I think, this election with, with Biden, um, which was basically to say, right, well, you know, we've lost a lot of working class voters. We need to try and build this coalition of middle class voters with kind of more progressive um, younger people. Uh, and that just just scraped it for Biden, basically. Um, it obviously didn't work for Labour in, in 2019, which was, I think, the idea behind this tilt towards Remain and a kind of more progressive uh, coalition. So this question of how you get working class voters back into the arms of social democratic parties is the big existential question, I think, for the left all over the world um, in, uh, in, in the 21st century. And it's only gonna become more relevant as the economy kind of continues basically to, to fail those people. Um, the, the, the real risk, I think, is that people will react to that failure by basically saying, well, no politicians represent us. We're going to vote for these very kind of, you know, right wing populist parties that seek to enter the political establishment and just, you know, throw it, just create a, a massive mess. This is what Trumpism was about. It's what this, the support for, you know, Marine Le Pen in France is about. It's just this kind of idea that people are being screwed over, politicians aren't going to do anything about it, so let's just screw around with the system. Um, and, you know, that is, I think, a really, really significant danger. How the Labour Party deals with this is going to be a real issue, because at the moment, I can't see Keir Starmer winning the next election. He's just not inspiring people enough around his message. Um, and, you know, whatever your message is, like as a political leader, you have to go out there and really bang the drum for it. You have to make sure that people know what you stand for, that people are going to be excited about voting for you in the next election. The only way the Labour Party is going to win is if we manage to tempt people back into the electorate. You know, the, the Brexit uh, referendum was, uh, was a time when, you know, turnout was really the highest, um, higher than it is in most general elections. And if Labour is going to win, they need to get those people back and back voting again and being inspired and passionate about, about voting again. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem to be, be the case at the moment. Of course, divided parties don't win elections. So, you know, the existence of splits within the party isn't gonna help that. But equally, it doesn't seem like Labour's going anywhere the next election as it is right now. One of the things that strikes me, which is interesting because as a kid, a young teenager, even in my twenties, you know, before the internet kind of took off, um, I was very aware of, of lots of politicians as a young guy, be it on the Conservative or the Labour Party, but now it strikes me that it's almost kind of, it's, um, it's a battle between the leaders, it's either Boris or Keir. And, and I was thinking this morning, how many actual Labour MPs and Conservative MPs can I actually name? And, you know, at the moment, I'm, I couldn't tell you probably more than a couple of people who were on Keir Starmer's front bench. And mm. I can tell you similar, similarly with the the government, um, probably more so because they're popping up on the telly. But I think you're right. I think it's an interesting time for politics. And but I, but I, I do fundamentally feel that young people should be engaging with it. And I think both parties are doing a great job at switching people off. Actually, yeah. I mean that um, that trend that you mentioned of just not really being able to name any politicians is a really interesting one because it speaks to, I think, the kind of hollowing out of politics really. It's become, and I think, you know, as politics became very professionalized, it became very personalized. So 
it became all about individual personalities. And, you know, when I was talking about th these questions around Corbyn's leadership earlier, that was really a kind of backlash against that personalization. It was like, no, we have this movement and that's what's going to be the foundations of this, not just one leader. But it didn't work. And, I, I, and that's largely because, you know, our entire media ecosystem is built around this very professionalized or individualized, very personalized political system where it's all about, as you said, this one guy generally sometimes woman <laughs> um so yeah i mean that is that is a real challenge because i think the only way to actually get people really inspired again is to make them feel like they have the power to change things and i think having a very personalized individualized um political process really puts people off because they think well i'm not the prime minister so what can i do and we used to have in this country many, many more, you know, political movements that people could get involved in. There was a much greater sense of, uh, of solidarity at work. There was much more kind of things you could get involved in in the community. Um, there was more kind of, you know, we lived in a less individualized society, basically much more collective conceptions of, uh, of how we could get involved in things and, and therefore how we could change things. So it's really only by getting into groups with other people that you get a sense of your own agency and your ability to change the world. I think that's a real, the real problem that we have today. It's just like, I certainly found that when I was on the doorstep. People just don't believe that things could be better. It's not that they don't think things are bad. They just don't believe that things could be better. And I think to me, that speaks to just the erosion and the hollowing out of our political life. Yeah. Grace, can I just move on to um, a slightly different subject, but one I'd like to pick your brains on is, is uh, how we recover from COVID-19 financially and as an economist I'm really interested to hear your views so could you perhaps explain to me and and, and watchers and listeners how um, the conservative approach to exiting Brexit uh, sorry COVID-19 financially yes. might be different to the way that you would like to see um, as exit financially from this COVID crisis and, and where the differences might be yeah, so I've campaigned a lot um, on this idea of the Green New Deal, um, which would basically be a kind of big package of investment in the economy that both aims to kind of um, boost uh, jobs, create jobs and, and boost incomes and reduce inequality, as well as decarbonizing the economy. So, you know, basically weaning us off uh, polluting um, industries and, uh, and brown ways of producing energy, moving towards a kind of a greener system. Um, and yeah, the idea behind that would be, say, you know, investing in wind and solar power, for example, to try and green our energy system, investing in greener forms of transportation, um, building new homes that were more environmentally sustainable, retrofitting existing homes, um, as well as doing things like investing a lot of money in research and development to come up with new technologies, you know, new ways of, uh, of combating the climate emergency. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's an increasingly popular idea all around the world um, since, you know, particularly since Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the US picked that up and really made that something that they wanted to run with. And obviously Biden has a big climate package that he wants to uh, introduce in the US in the wake of, of the pandemic. I think there has been a real shifting of the dial in terms of uh, people's attitudes towards public spending. Very, very few people want to see the return of austerity. I think even in the Conservative Party, they were aware that perhaps a big reason for their kind of close call in 2017 was their attitude towards public spending. And Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak seem to be, you know, of a quite a different breed uh, of Conservative than, say, uh, 
Cameron and, uh, and Osborne, both in the sense that they're much more kind of culturally conservative, but also I think because, um, you know, there is this push towards um, really just getting rid of this image of austerity and actually saying we're the party that's going to invest and create jobs and, and spend money. I think the real issue then in terms of the difference between left and, and right, if it's not just purely about they're spending money, they're not spending money, um, has to do with, you know, where those resources are being allocated. So I think certainly during the pandemic, we've seen basically quite a lot of corruption from the Conservative Party in terms of procurement contracts and, uh, and the way that this money's been spent. It's been really kind of directed a lot of the time towards the wealthy, towards big businesses, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, less to those who really, really need it. So obviously, you know, the disabled, um, older people, who, all of whom are kind of struggling with long-term cuts to social care, to the welfare system, et cetera. Um, and I think that would be the worry coming out of this. It's not necessarily that Conservatives are gonna go back to austerity, it's more that the way that the resources that they will put into the economy, the economy will be spent will not tend to reduce inequality. And inequality is going to be the big thing when we come out of this pandemic, because some people have done very well out of the pandemic. Some people have done OK, but a very large portion of people are doing very, very badly. Um, and that is, is, is going to worsen unless we do something about it. Yeah. And Boris's approach to green strategies and the environment, it, 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 Please tell me if I'm wrong, but is he not quite uh, environmentally friendly? He seems to have quite forceful in his agenda. I know his father's big into this. Are you a million miles away from each other in, on, on thoughts and policies on that? So I think um, Boris has certainly stepped up his rhetoric when it comes to climate. I think all politicians have, they have to, because it is you know, consistently ranked as up there with some of the, the biggest issues that people think the, the country and the world is facing. And I know, for example, that, um, so Carrie um, Boris's uh, now wife, I think, um, is very, very into, into um, climate stuff and is kind of putting a lot of pressure on him to, to make him take this quite seriously. So I think that's a, that's a factor as well. Um, but in terms of, you know, his approach, I mean, it is interesting because when you combine this kind of some renewed attention towards climate with this willingness to spend more money there have been some announcements suggesting that the conservatives will put some money into uh into decarbonization the issue is is the focus so the idea of the green new deal is that it becomes a kind of mission for the entire state to orient itself towards so it's not just like a bit, a bit of investment in wind power there and then you know building loads more roads over here it's actually about making sure that every area of public spending is oriented towards promoting decarbonisation and reducing inequality. The Conservatives kind of give with one hand and take away with the other. So there's this kind of, you know, relatively small, actually, uh, announcements around um, the kind of green industrial revolution that's combined with um, measures that, if anything, could end up worsening climate breakdown. So, you know, there's not really a path in place to get away from petrol and diesel cars, for example, um, you know, investing in, in public transport and that sort of sort of stuff. Um, there's also, I think, not really too much attention being given to the um, kind of impact on inequality of decarbonisation. So obviously this is a big hot button topic given the LFS protests in France. What we see happens when you try to basically heat the cost of climate breakdown on working people by introducing very severe taxes, people push back against that. Um, so, you know, that, that's basically what the Green New Deal is about. It's about saying we are not going to just try and use existing systems and existing ways of doing things 
to move towards a, a decarbonized world. We're actually going to have to transform the way that the economy works if we're going to be able to do this properly and if we're going to bring people along with us. So if we're going to be able to build support for this while we're doing it. And I think the Conservatives aren't really there um, mm. on that. I don't think they'll, they'll ever be really. Okay. Grace, I, I hate to ask a, a socialist to pay Boris compliments, but what do you think is, is his appeal? He, it seems like at the moment, you know, it could make, well, he's, you know, he's been criticised numerous things during COVID, yeah. but he still seems to have this kind of um, almost love affair going on with the nation yeah. that, that people just, they'll stick by him. What do you think it is? What do you think the attraction to Boris actually is? Well, I mean, he's a very charismatic guy, isn't he? He kind of seems like, and you know, this is again, speaks to that thing about personalization of politics. I feel like, you know, he seems like the, a type of guy who you could maybe go and have a pint with down the pub and it'd be quite fun and, you know, whatever. He doesn't take things too seriously. And I think, um, you know, for a public that is used to politicians who are basically kind of boring and not charismatic and whatever, Boris seems, you know, like it'd be a bit of a laugh. And I think for a lot of people, maybe that's enough. Um, for others, you know, I think, the Conservatives just have a, a very solid core base of support among people who are basically doing okay as it is and don't really want things to change that much. Um, so, you know, I think for them, the appeal of voting Conservative is literally in the name. It's just keeping things as they are, right? Conserving. Um, and, you know, Boris Johnson is just a, a safe pair of hands in that, in yeah. that, in those. Grace. I Sorry, carry on. Uh, I just want to ask you, because there's been on numerous interviews, I've asked people about empathy in politics. What, what strikes me about talking to you is uh, there's a very um, there's a great, very empathetic person talking to me who's, you know, not beyond criticism, is prepared to talk about Boris in, in, in a favourable light. I recently interviewed Alistair Campbell, who, and I took him to task on this, who was just in, insistent on putting the boot in um of, of disparaging remarks and kindness and and i wonder if you think that that is a way forward in politics in actually showing some empathy to different opinions different views different lifestyles you know people who are rich people who are poor uh, and um i just think about jacinda ardeen in, in new zealand who seems to have found i know it's a very different demographic and country but is that just a bit wishy-washy saying we just need a bit more empathy in politics or, or is it actually true? No, I think you're right, actually. I think we do um, need a lot more empathy in politics. You know, the, the idea of politics, this kind of sport where it's about kind of name calling and competition between individual people. I, I don't find that particularly appealing. Um, you know, to be honest, I don't really care that much about people's individual failings or you know mistakes that they've made in the past or whatever what I care about is their commitment to their cause whatever that cause might be um and I think you know I, I I think basically because of my politics you know I don't see what's wrong with the world as necessarily coming down to failings of individual people I see what's wrong with the world as the structures that we've created ourselves often bring out the worst in people so we've created this society which is built on competition and uh you know individualism and so we've lost the elements of uh you know of, of um ourselves that are basically oriented towards cooperation and solidarity and all those things that um that i think really make us human mm. um and i think that is that is primarily about 
about the systems. It's about the systems that we've constructed and, and the way that the world works. So when, you know, you see very, very individual attacks on people, which the left does and the right does, you know, I think on the left, there is this tendency to basically think, oh, well, the reason that the, the world is bad is because we've had this bad prime minister or this bad, you know, chief executive of this big company. It's like, no, actually, those people are just in the system. The system will produce and throw up the people that it needs to reproduce itself. And there will always be someone to play that role. I don't think it's helpful just to say, well, let's blame this person. Now, that's not to say that people don't make mistakes because they do. And often, actually, there are people who deliberately reproduce these structures of, of violence and oppression and exploitation. And, you know, obviously those people need to be called out. I'm not saying that people should be immune from criticism. I'm just saying focus less on individuals and focus more on the system and the structures that give us the individuals that we have, right? Um, and for me then, you know, the question comes down to um, how we can create systems that actually allow people to be better selves, basically. Um, and I think that's actually, so that's kind of where my faith aligns with my politics. Um, basically because I think, you know, Tony Benn always, um, I, I thought was very eloquent on this, on like the Christian um, foundations of socialism. It's basically, I think, grounded in this kind of, you know, Aristotle has this idea of flourishing, that every person has the capacity to flourish. And I feel like the system that we've constructed prevents most people from flourishing both those who are the most exploited and the most oppressed obviously but also those at the very top because you know you're stripped of your humanity basically when you have to kind of you know only focus on being competitive and winning and beating everyone around you um so yeah you know i think if we want to bring that kind of world into being we have to learn to see the world in a different way not just as the result of individual actions but actually the result of our collective choices about what kind of world we want to construct for ourselves yeah and just, just a few more grace just in terms of faith and church do you, do you think the church uh will come out of covid in a stronger position uh, than it has entered it what's your what's your take on on church and, and engagement with the social structures i think well i mean <laughs> adapting in the church of england aren't exactly two things that <laughs> they go together particularly strongly <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, if the church is going to get through this, it does need to learn to adapt. There are going to be a lot of, there already are a lot of people who are looking for a sense of meat, not just of meaning and purpose and, you know, uh, you know, an understanding of their position in the world, but also a sense of community. And for me, I've always felt like the church has provided that. It's, it's a place you can go and you'll meet people from all different walks of life who don't maybe have a lot in common with you, but who you can kind of talk to and you have this common set of experiences anyway and I think a, a lot of people would would find that really welcome it's just a question as to whether or not you know the church can actually kind of shake off the pretty dusty image that it has and begin speaking to those concerns I think often you know I, I always see this of like people trying to make church seem cool and I, I always think that's the wrong way to go because people aren't coming to church because they want it to be cool if they're coming to church as a new you know a thing that they're doing they're really you know looking for something very particular which is a sense of spiritual connection um, and, and of community and, and that sort of stuff and I think if the church really focused a bit more on that on you know not just kind of um, uh, recycling the same sort of rituals and, uh, and and readings but actually trying to bring the meaning out of 
biblical teaching and showing how it can be applied to, to daily life and actually also trying to kind of maybe use insights from uh, from all different kinds of, of, of faiths and spiritualities that allow us really to kind of connect with that journey within ourselves as well so kind of meditative traditions and uh, and you know I, that's how I kind of practice my faith I kind of have it is this kind of lived journey where yeah. I'm trying to you know yeah like change who I am basically yeah. through like this stuff and, and, this, um, and this idea, uh, well, I know it's not just churches and I know it's mosques and, and all, all sorts of places, but the, maybe this notion that food banks have been franchised out to churches now. What, what that, that, we, we run a food bank. I hate running the food bank. I want it to end, but I'm not sure how I can do that. What's your, what's your view? Yeah, I mean, it is really... It, it is just a testament to the, the cruelty of austerity, actually, that that's the position that we've ended up in. And again, you know, I don't necessarily chalk that up to individual politicians deciding we want to make people use food banks, but it's the inevitable result of constructing, um, you know, uh, an approach to economic and political governance that is based on this idea um, that, uh, yeah we're just kind of these atomized isolated individuals and we all have to be encouraged to compete and everyone has to be forced to work because they're all lazy and incompetent and stupid it just is like why do where did the idea of, of the welfare state go as something that everyone would rely on at one point in their lives because we don't want to live in a society in which if for one reason or another you find yourself on hard times that's basically a death sentence. And that is ultimately what it ended up becoming, especially for, I did an interview on my podcast the other day with a, a disabled activist who was just talking about the hell that disabled people have been put through over the last decade, basically, with so many of their kind of friends dying because of the, the cruelty in the, in the welfare system. And it does just seem to me that that's, that, you know, I don't often talk about politics and just kind of very, purely moral terms because I think you know there is not always helpful to speak moralistically about politics because you can put people off and you end up assuming you know they're the bad guys and they're the good guys but that just really was the kind of tearing out of the heart of the welfare state was I think just deeply cruel and deeply immoral and it's caused so much unnecessary suffering mm. that has given us this situation where yeah churches have to step up where community organizations have to step up because the welfare state is just gone. It's it's horrible. Grace, it's been it's been really wonderful talking to you. You've been absolutely fascinating. Your comments have been extremely thought provoking. I did earlier say about younger people entering frontline politics. Maybe there's a career move. In <gasps> maybe I'm yeah. not sure Kama would let me stand, but maybe at some point in the future, I'm not sure. You know, uh, it's something to talk about though. Maybe when I'm a bit older. Well, if it happens, just remember where you heard it first, the, the prophecy I'm... from Burnley. So, <laughs> so listen, uh, my last question is, because I always ask this, have you, have you ever been to Burnley? And if you've not been to Burnley, please tell me you've been to Lancashire. I've, I've definitely been to Lancashire. Um, I lived in, in Salford for a year, actually. Right. Um, I know that um, a lot of people really, so obviously that's Greater Manchester, but I remember a lot of people very, very much resenting the idea of Greater Manchester and saying, no, I don't live in Greater Manchester, I live in Lancashire. We'll let you in. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, but I haven't been to Burnley, so I would love to come sometime. <laughs> well, there you go. They'll, they'll be looking for a prospective uh, candidate at some point, won't they? So. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure I've got quite the accent for it. <laughs> Grace, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we send our love to you from, from Lancashire and Burnley. And, uh, and we say thanks very much for joining us on the Godcast. Thank you, Grace. Thanks for having me.